Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Catherine Franey. Catherine is a historian and audio producer. She's co-curator of an exhibition at the State Library of New South Wales called Pride Revolution, and she joins us today to talk about mountaineer Freda Defar. She was an exceptional mountaineer. Um, she was born in the early 1880s in Sydney, and um, I suppose her mountaineering career got started around 1908 so by then she's just sort of in her mid-20s the thing about you know being a mountaineer you really need to have some mountains to climb and Australia isn't known for its mountains and Frida didn't know that she had you know a, a particular penchant for mountains until she visited New Zealand she was accompanying her father and they visited the the southern Alps which are not too far from Christchurch on the train and she was just really drawn to this landscape and they stayed in the hermitage which is still there um, and that's where all the mountaineers stayed so the southern alps of new zealand um, this is the the training ground for you know very significant climbers in history like sir edmund hillary and it's a great training ground for the himalayas actually because the conditions there are quite similar to those of the Himalayas, but it's all at a much lower altitude. So it's a great sort of um, mechanism for really getting your chops as a climber without having to battle with the, the, the challenges of low oxygen. So it's no wonder that many of the world's greatest climbers actually um, come, from, come from New Zealand. So she got chatting at the Hermitage with um, a couple of the guides that operated out of there. Um, they were brothers called Peter and Alex Graham. And she was invited to join them, you know, the next day on a low-key climb. And she was absolutely hooked. She loved it. She realises that in order to do more climbing, she's going to need to get fit. And so she comes back to Australia and she starts training. So she and her family, they live just um, in what's now the Karingai Chase National Park. And so she would go um, walking through the Karingai Chase National Park. She called it scrambling because it was always kind of clambering over rocks. She took her little dog with her. She loved being in the, in the, in the bush there. Um, but in order to get really fit, she actually attended a gym in Sydney. And there's a gym right down, not far from Circular Quay. And they've got gym equipment um, and they run classes and women are welcome there, which is quite unusual. In fact, a really important person at the DuPain Institute was... Muriel Cadogan. She's around Frida's age and she's a trainer there. She was passionate about about fitness and particularly fitness for women. So she start, she and Frida start working together on Frida's fitness and they get together as they become lovers. The State Library has also commissioned a digital map uh, to go with the Pride Revolution exhibition. Um, and the map is called Sporty Lesbians and Fit Feminists. So I'll be sure to link to that in the description. I mean, I've done lots of work on Frida Dufour in the past as a historian and an audio producer. I made a radio documentary about her maybe a decade ago. And um, the story has always stayed with me. And I think what's really interesting about Frida is she's she's quite famous in New Zealand. So 
lot of recognition of her name in New Zealand, very little here. So she really made a mark in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. What her great claim to fame was after she got fit with Muriel in the gym in Sydney was she was the first woman to climb the highest peak in New Zealand. So that mountain is now called Aoraki, which is uh, the traditional name for it. Um, In her day, it was called Mount Cook. It's a pretty serious mountain. And she also did it in six hours, which was a new record. So she shaved two hours off of the previous um, time record for that climb. And that was a pretty amazing achievement. And after that, she just kept going season after season in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. She, um, you have to climb in summer. So you have to climb basically around December. Uh, And when I say summer, it it doesn't mean that it's not, you know, really icy conditions. It's it's extremely icy and cold, but um, impossible to do entirely in winter. And some of the ascents that she made were absolute firsts, you know, not just the first woman. She was actually the first person to climb a lot of these peaks in that area. And um, she even named some mountain peaks after, well, she named several. And one or two of them, the names that she gave them related to her relationship with Muriel. One of them, for example, she called Cadogan Peak. That was Muriel's surname. She actually wrote a book about her climbing uh, much later. And it's very clear from the way that she wrote about climbing that it was just her vocation. It filled her with a sense of completeness and joy. She was just compelled to ascend. It just gave her such a high. Um, So it doesn't surprise me that she was kind of faster, faster than anyone else. The other curious thing she always had guides with her. So those, those brothers, Peter Graham and Alex Graham, particularly Peter, I think he was her, her main guide. Of course, they were there with her every step of the way. So it's funny, isn't it, this culture around amateur climbing. I mean, it was something that, that wealthy people did and local guides took them. So like the local guides are doing the climbing as well, but it's the, it's, the, it's the amateur that is paying for those guides that gets the glory. And we've seen this, of course, in the Himalayas as well with the Sherpas, and, um, but certainly that dynamic was even happening in New Zealand, which is, which is kind of interesting. And it's funny that you bring that up because I know there was a fair bit of pearl clutching at the Hermitage when people found out that she was planning to, you know, go on these excursions overnight, unchaperoned with men. And, you know, for example, she had to climb in a skirt to try and uh, forestall some of the complaints that she was getting. Um, And ironically, she ended up having to pay a porter to accompany them, which... I mean, to my mind, that's just one more man that she's out there with. And she later wrote, I agreed to this, but felt vindictive when I thought of the extra expense entailed and threatened to send the bill to my tormentors. I sighed not for the first time in my existence over the limits imposed upon me by the mere fact that I was unfortunate enough to be born a woman. I would like to see a man asked to pay for something he neither needed nor wanted when he had been hoarding up every penny so that he need not be crammed for want of funds. No, absolutely. Um, I, I, I appreciated those, those reflections that she made in the book as well about how ridiculous it was that she had to go to this extra expense. 
And she was only able to afford to pay for her climbing career because she was fortunate enough to have an inheritance from her aunt. Her mother's maiden name was Woolly, and the Woolies were important in early Sydney. Emmeline never married. Her partner was Ethel Pedley, who is famous for having written Dot and the Kangaroo. So Emmeline Woolley and Ethel Pedley shared many decades together until Ethel died. Um, And, you know, there are newspaper reports of how they lived together and hosted together and went travelling, you know, went on holiday together. Of course, there's nothing written saying these, these, they're lovers, but, you know... Um, certainly Frida Dufour's biographer, Sally Irwin, draws that conclusion quite reasonably. They had kind of a bit of a salon um, network. So they would, you know, get together and share ideas. And it's a, it's a really interesting little glimpse into, um, I guess, this, this, this culture of uh, educated women, some of whom were certainly queer in, in this period in Sydney. And when Emmeline died, um, she left all of her wealth to young Frida. Frida came from a, a reasonably well-off family, but this, was, this money that she, that she inherited from Emmeline meant that it was really her discretionary money. She could do what she wanted with it. And so she, she devoted those funds to, you know, pursuing her passion. Um, But the 20th century really sort of starts to intervene for Frida. So World War I occurs, which really puts the kibosh on on things like climbing. And in fact, um, Frida and Muriel set out for England, you know, around this time. And you know, this is what a lot of Antipodeans, especially, you know, Antipodeans with some money, did. Um, you know, they went to explore the world, basing themselves in England. And Frida and Muriel um, spent some time in, in England and they got involved in various causes. Because it was wartime, lots of opportunities were opening up for women in employment. And I know Muriel Cadogan um, did lots of different jobs when they were living in England. Um, Frida wrote her book, The The Conquest of Mount Cook, in this time. Um, Now, what Frida Dufour's biographer, Sally Irwin, found when she was researching Frida's life is that there was lots of information about Frida up to the time that she stopped climbing. Um, and then it was just really kind of the, the, you know, the leads went cold. It was really hard to work out what happened to Frida later in her life. But, you know, she pieced things together, kept, kept on with the research and found some extraordinary things about Frida's later life. So tragically, um, after her last ascent in, um, in New Zealand, you know, just, just before the First World War, I think, you know, Frida was imagining that she would climb internationally, that she would be able to explore other parts of the world and, and climb some mountains abroad. But that wasn't to be. I mean, I guess during wartime that was all pretty impossible. Um, but evidently the wheels kind of began to fell, fall off um, at some point. So in terms of Muriel's mental health and... Um, so we need to sort of fast forward now to like 1929. Frida wrote a long account 
of of what happened. Basically, Frida and Muriel were were sharing their life. They were living together, and Muriel Muriel had some kind of psychiatric breakdown, and Frida was caring for her, but it was a it was getting out of hand. Like it sounds like Muriel was really quite you know delusional and psychotic, and so um, Frida took Muriel to a doctor. By this stage, she was like completely worn down herself and really exhausted. You know, she'd been sort of kept up all night and, you know, but this had been going on for for months. So they take Muriel away. Frida is, of course, pretty keen to, um, you know, have access to Muriel. And at first, the medical staff, you know, allow her access. Um, visits on one or two days but then uh, but then they they say no you can't see her you can't see her she's got the flu and so they kind of withhold Frida's access to Muriel meanwhile Frida is encouraged to have a rest cure herself and uh, she doesn't really exactly remember what happens but um, essentially you know she lost some time so you know, I mean, there is historical work that's been done on, on this kind of, you know, deep sleep therapy essentially is, is what it was involving medicating people, you know, to a very high degree and just m- making them sleep for, you know, most like for a 24-hour cycle, they might sleep for 18 or 20 hours. So Frida was subjected to this so-called cure herself. She was told that she had a hedonistic persuasion inverted. This is what she was diagnosed. So an inversion in those days, that was the word used by doctors to describe uh, lesbian lesbian tendencies. So, you know, we assume that the doctors realised that Frida and Muriel were actually, you know, life partners and separated them, gave them, gave at least Frida this, this diagnosis of a hedonistic persuasion inverted um, and subjected her to this, this terrible, um, you know, drug therapy. And when she woke up from it, she was denied access to Muriel. She was told that Muriel's family had been contacted in Australia and that her sister was going to come and pick her up and take her take her back to Australia um, and yeah Frida just had no recourse she had no rights at all and sure enough Muriel's sister came from Australia and took Muriel away and on a ship on returning to Australia Muriel died from heat prostration so this was this was the cause of death, heat prostration. And you know, all of this is kind of quite mysterious, you know, as a historian, you look at these things and you try and get your head around like what does that what does that even mean? But um, you know, um, the investigations that that Frieda's biographer Sally Irwin made, talking to doctors and so on, understood this in terms of this you know excessive drug um, therapy that, Muriel had been subjected to basically a heart attack and she was 45 years old and she was a very fit healthy person before this psychiatric break and this intervention this medical intervention so 
Frida lost Muriel. Uh, Muriel died tragically. And really the grief from this and the outrage from this is what seems to have really coloured the rest of Frida's days. Um, so this was 1929. Uh, Frida actually died in 1935, so her life was, was cut short. Um, so she was born in 82 and died in 35. So she was still a young woman when she died and she actually took her own life back in Australia. So um, it's an outrageous story really about people, about women kind of being bent out of shape by the strictures imposed on them by this, you know, heteropatriarchal world that they lived in. It's interesting to note that while male homosexuality was a matter for the law, like it was actually illegal, um, female homosexuality seems to have been regulated largely on the psychiatric side, as you know we've just seen with this story. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me as someone who's read a lot of women's history, because um, throughout this period in particular, um, we see a lot of women being committed to asylums for any behavior that society doesn't like. So whether that's being pregnant out of wedlock, um, being a lesbian, or just being uh, shrewish, <laughs> um, any of those things could get you committed to an asylum um, and imprisoned against your wills. So from that perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense as to the different ways that homosexuality was um, addressed by society depending on gender. And in this case in particular, the doctors actually told Frida that the mental illness was a direct result of her lesbianism and that Muriel's being a lesbian must be Frida's fault. So they were blaming her for Muriel's condition. Muriel had also left everything that she owned to Frida in her will, but um, her family actively tried to block that inheritance. And the doctor was also so shady, he was actually charging hundreds and hundreds of pounds um, they, that the family tried to leave out of Muriel's estate. Um, so he was financially benefiting from the patient that he was clearly, you know, mistreating and taking advantage of. It's such a sad story, isn't it? And um, I know, and I, I wish it ended on a brighter note, but it's just their lives were cut short by this. It was a life and death matter. And um, I know, and the behaviour of, of Muriel's family, it's just, it's just absolutely tragic. This um, theme of estate rights for and relationship recognition for queer people and the history of that um, is something that actually um, is a thread in our in our exhibition. And you know, it's really only very recently that that the legislation has really you know become has really equalised in terms of its treatment of heterosexual couples and um, same-sex couples. So, um, but, you know, the story of Frida and Muriel is it's an outrageous case study in um, the unfairness of, um, of the regime, you know, before, before all of the slow incremental improvements that began to happen from, from about the 1990s onwards. And we also see that when Frida herself died, she wanted to leave her estate to um, a young woman named Frances Lord. Uh, this wasn't romantic. She was just um, a protege that she'd taken under her wing. And her own family then tried to block that inheritance as well when, you know, she really just wanted to provide 
this young woman with the same independence and freedom that her own aunt had given to her. And it's also worth noting that they went against her wishes to be cremated and had her buried, but um, they apparently didn't even bother giving her a gravestone. So her, her grave actually went unmarked for decades. And it was only after Sally Irwin's biography Between Heaven and Earth was released in 2000 that she started to get a bit more attention in Australia while, you know, in New Zealand, she's still relatively well known. Yeah, it's just it's just women's history. Like um, they're sort of they're they're frequently written out of history. It's it's completely outrageous. I've also noticed a lot of uh, families fighting for someone's legacy. So you see this a lot with um, widows and children. And um, from the sounds of it, her family wasn't terribly supportive in terms of the people who survived her. I think the queerness comes in there as well. Yeah, I guess when women are breaking out of the conventions, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's actually sort of shame around these stories within families quite frequently. So that's another reason why they're, they're not celebrated, as you say. Um, so what happened with Frida's um, gravestone is that, yeah, the, Sally Irwin's book was published um, which was the biography of Frida Dufour. This was of interest to, you know, particularly in New Zealand because Frida Dufour was quite a well-known name. And, um, uh, you know, a Kiwi called Ashley Gwalter read Sally's biography of Frida and he was um, visiting, he, he learnt that Fr- that Frida's grave was unmarked. So he, he was in Sydney and he went to visit um, Manly Cemetery where she was buried and discovered, yep, there's, there's just this unmarked grave. And so he sort of joined heads with a friend of his who was a journalist in New Zealand and he wrote a story about it and they got a bit of a campaign going um, to somehow mark Frida's um, gravesite in an appropriate way um, and so they got a donation from a stonemason of a piece of grey wacky stone which is you know geologically from this the area where the, the southern alps are where Frida loved to climb um, and yeah they were able to create a, a tombstone out of this grey wacky stone in fact it's almost in the shape of Mount Cook so that's or Al Raki so that's very appropriate for Frida so um, yeah, as as Ashley said when I interviewed him, you know she's got she's got a few people batting for her now, which she didn't really have at the end of her life. And I think in your documentary for uh, ABC Radio National, um, there was a line about because of the environment that she grew up with, um, with her you know supportive parents and um, her aunt and her aunt's circle of feminists essentially that she grew up with the idea that she could do anything and she was deeply annoyed that society kept trying to get in her way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I guess that's the legacy or the generational difference between her and her aunt Emmeline. So Emmeline was um, such an important influence in her in her life, like Emmeline and her, and her friends. And um, those women fought for suffrage and Frida inherited, you know, that empow- that um, enfranchised um, state, and uh, and understood that the world was her oyster, and there was no valid reason that she shouldn't participate in these activities, including mountain climbing, that um, that men were doing. So yeah, it's um, 
it's interesting to sort of think about the progress that happened just over the course of the even the early early 20th century and then with the experience of world war one where suddenly women were required to work in non-traditional employment you know in jobs that 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 men usually held um so understandings of what women were capable of was just completely very it was a very dynamic time in terms of well it's the first wave feminism isn't it and she's a beneficiary of that and Frida herself saw the impact of her mountaineering and the attention that it brought within a few years of her own climb. Um, she wrote, Five years after my first fight for individual freedom, the girl climber at the Hermitage need expect nothing worse than raised eyebrows when she starts out unchaperoned and clad in climbing costume. It is some consolation to have achieved as much as this and to have blazed one more little path through ignorance and convention and added one tiny spark to the ever-growing beacon lighted by the women of this generation to help their fellow travelers climb out of the dark woods and valleys of conventional tradition and gain the fresh, invigorating air and wider viewpoint of the mountaintops. And I think that's as good a place as any to end our conversation. So thank you once again to Catherine Franey for joining us to talk about Freda Defar, and join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. Remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.